You're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. This is The Big Tent, and I'm your host, Jackie Kettler. I'm here with my co-host, Luke Fowler. And today on the show, we're celebrating the 4th of July. Um, so, Luke, how do you usually celebrate or enjoy what do you enjoy celebrate? How do you enjoy celebrating Independence Day? Listen, I like to do something really American every year. It, it varies in what I mean by that, but you know, typically being outside, um, alcohol might be involved. Um, <laughs> hanging out with friends. Uh, see, a couple years ago, uh, me and a colleague got a slip and slide uh, and spent several hours in the backyard doing that. Um, but for men in our thirties, we probably shouldn't have, and I was definitely sore the next day. <laughs> uh, last year we were whitewater rafting, which was a good time. So you can do something outside, um, something that really celebrates America and all the freedoms we have. I think that's a great, a great, um, path, especially here in Boise where we've got all these outdoor activities. And you know, it's just going to be sunny and warm all mm-hmm. day. So it just makes for a perfect July 4th where you have, you know, 16 hours of daylight too. Yeah, that's true. I feel like by the time the evening rolls around we end up just taking care of our dog all night who hates fireworks so you know everyone before before this evening make sure your your dogs are all kind of you know safely placed for the for the fireworks but we here on the big tent think another great way to celebrate independence our independence is to discuss representation in elections some of those kind of key founding debates so joining us today to help us discuss these items um, is charlie hunt our new colleague at school of public service welcome charlie thanks so much for having me so since it's fourth of july thinking about some of these kind of key debates on the founding of our government you know what are some of the kind of founding debates that were uh, present around the issues of like representation Well, really, one of the main uh, sticking points during the discussion of the Constitution, which, by the way, you may think it's hot outside here, but it was even hotter in Philadelphia uh, when they were debating the Constitution. Uh, They had to keep all of the windows of Independence Hall closed. Of course, it wasn't Independence Hall at the time, but they had to keep all the windows closed because they were worried about... uh, you know, secrets getting out and the British finding out. and uh, Well, that and, sounds miserable. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, uh, you know, I wasn't there, but I gather it was pretty miserable. Um, and there were some heated debates, too, and, and really one of the main sticking points was over geographic representation. Uh, the small states were used to being fairly independent states, and they wanted to have their own laws and constitutions and be able to remain as independent as possible. Uh, whereas uh, some of the larger states wanted more proportional representation, meaning uh, representation based on individuals and population rather than the state itself. And so they didn't want to have an equal footing with the smaller states because they have more people. And this was really the main representational debate that played out uh, during the constitutional discussions. Yeah, I think these are some debates that we continue to have. I mean, particularly when it comes to things like the Electoral College every year mm-hmm. um, and the debates, uh, again, when we see some uh, we'll call it controversial legislation comes through, I always see like people blowing up my Facebook feed about uh, the power of large rural agricultural states and, what, and how those should be balanced against others. Because, you know, of course, North Dakota has the same number of senators as California does and whether or not that's really <laughs> fair and equitable. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the debate of whether to have, uh, you know, a single uh, what they call unicameral legislature of just one chamber uh, or whether to have uh, two, which, of course, is what we ended up as, you know, the House of Representatives, which is, you know, proportional to the amount of uh, people who live in each state. And then the Senate, which has equal representation. Uh, you know, this causes uh, some serious uh 
confrontations, as you may know, uh, in the federal government and certainly with the Electoral College, especially since, you know, two of the last few elections, uh, you know, the popular vote has been, uh, you know, superseded by the Electoral College. And that's brought about a lot of questions about, you know, does it really matter having states be represented equally uh, and, and a lot of the questions around there? So it's it, to this day, it's uh, still one of our most debated questions. And I mean, certainly that's exacerbated by the moves towards urban centers, right? Because sure. I guess in 1776, 90% of the population, 90, 80% <laughs> of a super majority of the population lived in the rural countryside and very few people lived in cities. But now we're reverse of that and fewer and fewer people, fewer and fewer people are living in rural areas. So we've really seen a population shift over the last 250 years. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, the main metropolitan areas in that time uh, were you know, only, you know, a couple, you know, 10, 20,000 people. In fact, uh, you know, the first representatives in the House of Representatives, there were fewer representatives then, but each one represented, you know, about 30 or 40,000 citizens. Uh, Today, they represent, you know, over 800,000 apiece, and we have 435 of them. And so, you know, this brings about a lot of questions of, you know, whether one person who's elected can really take into account all the views of, you know, all the citizens who live in their districts. And so, you know, there are lots of proposals recently to, you know, do things like expand the number of representatives. Uh, You know, these aren't likely to go anywhere anytime soon, but they bring about, I think, some important questions about, you know, whether you know, individual Americans are actually having their voices heard in Congress. For sure. Yeah, I think that that's definitely we've got that's like quite the change, too. Right. And so I imagine that institutions start to like take different kind of the act differently or like are affected differently as we've shifted our population, both in where they live and the size of the number of representatives per per member of Congress. But I believe in California, like their California senators actually represent larger population than our than our U.S. House members, which makes their state elections also really weird compared to like congressional politics. Right. And you have some states where, uh, you know, Wyoming or Delaware or Montana who only have one representative in the House of Representatives, uh, and so they represent the same people as their senators do, whereas, you know, Kamala Harris in California, who's their senator and running for president, obviously, you know, she represents 30-some million people, and one of the representatives in California represents less than a million, and so it creates some interesting dynamics, like, within the uh, congressional delegations in the House and Senate, and how they go about representing their states. And I think you start to see some interesting uh, patterns and overlap between the House and Senate in those states where they do have equal representation because of population. Interesting. And so you kind of work on your research is on Congress and elections and representation. So do some of these kind of debates or questions motivate your research? Absolutely. I mean, geographic representation is uh, you know, not quite as in style as it used to be. I'm trying to bring it back, though. Uh, you know, a lot of the debate these days obviously revolves around partisanship and party affiliation. You know, we think the way that voters choose their representatives, you know, Democrats elect Democrats, Republicans elect Republicans, and that's the end of the story. Uh, I don't think it's quite the end of the story. Um, there's still a lot of variation in how uh, voters decide between different Democrats, if they're a Democrat, uh, you know, using candidates' personal characteristics, their personal backgrounds, 
And uh, one of the areas I get into is how geographically they are connected to their local place and how rooted they are in their communities. And how might someone be geographically like connected to a place? There are a lot of different indicators you can use. So traditionally, people have used things like, you know, whether they live there or how long they've lived there. Um, in my research, you know, I've collected a lot of data on a bunch of uh, a bunch of different measures. So whether they've held a local political office, whether they were born in the district, whether they went to high school, college, or postgraduate school in the district, uh, whether they own a business in their district. You know, these are all indicators that tie them to that specific place. And, you know, I think offer at least one type of representation that the framers intended when they were talking through the Constitution. You know, they wanted people who understood the area, understood the voters, and therefore could represent their interests well in Congress, since the interests of, you know, people in rural Nebraska are not the same as, uh, you know, in the Bronx or something. So, uh, you, you know, local rootedness in the place can help be an indicator that you understand those views and are going to represent your, your constituents well in Congress. Well, and I think you develop closer connections within in the people right. in those communities as well, right, which can be helpful. That's well, right. we're going to pick this up again in just a minute. We're going to take a quick break here on the Big Tent, uh, but come right back for more discussion um, of Charlie's research. Hi, this is Aaron from the band Buke and Gase. You are listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell Boise, community radio for Boise and beyond. All right, we're back on the uh, Big Tent. We're talking about representation for our July 4th special. Um, we're here with Charlie Hunt um, that's uh, talking about all these things because he's, he's an expert in this area. Um, not that me and Jackie don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> with it, but he's, he knows it's a little better than we do. that we don't know what we're talking about, Luke. <laughs> uh, so at the uh, end of the last uh, segment, you were, you were discussing re geographic representation and the idea of our, our congressmen and our senators being rooted in their districts. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? And particularly, uh, I think here in Idaho, like, most of all our congressional representation, even uh, our state uh, state legislatures, are rooted in their community and the fact that they were born and raised and they kind of did this. And now there's a lot of conflict with people moving in from out of state and maybe some of them starting to get kind of um, compete in these for these political offices. I think Jack used the, the phrase carpetbagger earlier, and uh, being from the South, I love that phrase. Um, so can you talk about kind of the opposite in here? Like, what does it look like when people aren't rooted to their, their communities? Right. So uh, it's funny you bring up the term carpetbagger. Carpetbagger, you know, that's an old term sort of originates in the 1800s uh, when candidates would literally, you know, pack up their carpet bags and move to a new place uh, and they wouldn't be rooted in their communities. Uh, and, you know, this is something that people people like the idea of a candidate being born and raised there. It's it's a you know, symbolically, it's an indication that this candidate, oh, they're like us. They've experienced the same things. They care about the same places that we do. So it's almost like a shortcut, like that people, someone, could, a voter could use to be like, oh, yeah, they understand what my needs are. Absolutely. In a lot of ways, it's, you know, voters, a lot of voters like to learn about, you know, where candidates stand on issues, uh, you know, what kinds of issues they care about and are going to prioritize. But if they have a sense that, you know, Oh, they, oh, you grew up in the area, too. Um, you faced a lot of the same issues that I've faced growing up. And so I can, you know, assume and not have to, you know, pay as much attention or dig into the policy details. I'm going to trust that you're going to have my best interests at heart. And so a lot of this is, is an issue of trust. Oh, yeah. Like we went to high school together. So you get where I'm coming from. You That's get right. the, you get exactly. my struggle. Right. That's right. That's right. You had the you had the same, you know 
horrible or amazing science teacher in, in seventh grade. Uh, but uh, no, beyond that, I mean, there are, a lot, there are a lot of candidates that are locally rooted, but there are also a lot that aren't. Um, you know, for example, in, in some of the in, in West Virginia, there's a there's a, a congressman named Alex Mooney, who is not from the area. In fact, he was in the state House of Representatives in two different states before he became a member of Congress in West Virginia. Uh, (laughs) And he moved to West Virginia the year before uh, he ran for Congress. Now, he's still a member of Congress because West Virginia at this point is a very red state. He's a Republican. Um, But he runs far behind President Trump in West Virginia, meaning that, you know, in his district, uh, President Trump got way, you know, way more votes uh, comparatively than Mooney did. And so a lot of times what being locally rooted in your district does is it helps you meet or surpass, uh, you know, what you would normally expect to be able to get based on a lot of other factors like party uh, or like ideology. That's interesting. So it's almost like you get a few extra bonus points That's for right. being from the district. That's right. And I mean, it's and it's interesting that we sort of think about it as bonus points because, you know, as we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, the framers, this was part of their founding argument. They they hated partisanship. They wanted it to be nowhere near our politics. They wanted, you know, you know, local representation to be central so that people's, you know, separate and diverse interests could be represented. But now what we, you know, have more and more is just, you know, representation of one party or the other, and they're just at odds. And, I mean, I think, uh, you know, going along with this is there's a lot of frustration with that. I think that's an understatement that people are frustrated with partisanship. Um, and, you know, part of what I'm, I'm hoping to accomplish with my research is look into some of these ways that we might be able to cut across partisanship and cut through that. And maybe, you know, representatives can discover some you know, uh, you know, mutual kind of familiarity with their home areas and try and, you know, get together on certain policy issues based on that. Um, I mean, as we know, you know, I'm new to Idaho, but I know that there are, you know, some local issues that don't necessarily have a completely, uh, you know, partisan uh, feel to them. And there may be issues that, you know, based on, you know, you know, connectedness to a place, regardless of what party you are, maybe you can come together on those issues. So there's certain, um, let's say, types of places uh, where this idea of being rooted is more important. Like what I'm thinking mm-hmm. of is that, you know, particularly like rural, uh, rural states where their, mm-hmm. their, their population might be static. Um, maybe it's more important there than, say, some bigger cities where population is a little bit more mobile. I mean, is that held up by research at all or is that just kind of me guessing? Well, it's uh, that certainly makes sense on its face. And certainly rural communities uh, tend to be the most locally rooted. Um, so, you know, what I did in my research is look not just at the legislator, you know, the candidate running for office, but look at the voters as well and look at, you know, statistics on, you know, whether or not that, you know, the voters in that district were born in the area. Um, and interestingly, what we see is that in rural areas and in very urban areas, you have these locally rooted communities. You think of, you know, of course, you know, rural areas where people aren't aren't so geographically mobile, but then you, you know, think of, you know, certain neighborhoods or blocks in, you know, in the Bronx or in South Boston where people actually aren't super mobile. They have, 
you know, more dense, but still tight knit communities. And they value people who understand the struggles that they're going through. Where you see this break down a little bit is in uh, very suburban areas, areas with really high growth and lots of change, as you were alluding to before. Because the, the sort of local identity of that place is less rooted in history and tradition and things carrying on from the past, but all of the change that's happening. And so, you know, those voters are going to want candidates who are going to embrace that change and represent it uh, rather than, you know, try and sort of preserve, you know, an older identity of that place. And so... There is some urban-rural split, but really suburban areas are where you see this kind of place-based representation break down a little bit. That's interesting. And I think reflects some of the other differences you see in kind of suburban areas being kind of unique in, mm-hmm. way, in some ways. So, you know, if you have the bad luck of not living in a district you grew up in or went to school in um, and you want to run for office, what are things that you might be able to do to help kind of develop those roots to the district that aren't necessarily like, you know, from growing up there? So there's there are a lot of things you can do. So obviously there's the campaign trail, and you can go out there on the campaign trail. Uh, and when you're building out your sort of campaign uh, apparatus, you know you have to raise a ton of money. You have to and and you have to use a lot of staff to help you get from place to place and help you you know hold events. You know what you could do is uh, you know get staff who are locally rooted in the area and who can you know help you as a candidate adjust and you know not not to uh, i would never i'm not a campaign advisor i would never advise a candidate to pretend they're from the area (laughs) and in fact there are a lot of candidates who get in a lot of trouble for trying to inflate their resume right uh whether it's you know general qualifications and trying to pretend that their job was more important than it was and there are some that sort of uh you know pretend like they have roots in the district but uh the issue there is that the locally rooted community who's going to vote for you or actually not vote for you in this case, they can kind of, you know, smell that BS from a while away, you know, that they can, they can see that that's not authentic. And, you know, we hear the term authenticity a lot when we're talking about campaigns and, and how popular certain candidates are. And, uh, you know, the thing about being locally rooted in the community, it's a tough thing to fake if you haven't actually lived it, because it's very specific to that place and a certain time. And so it's not like coming in with sort of a fat resume. It's having specific experience in, in the district. And so the best you can do is, you know, have a good resume, learn the issues, you know, talk to staff, talk to local leaders, and do a lot of listening while you're out on the campaign trail. That makes sense. And also sounds like parties may be really looking for for potential candidates with those roots in the district. But we're going to continue talking about campaigns here in a minute on the Big Tent, but we're going to take a quick break. Unexplained bacon. Radio Boise. It's like bacon for your ears. Welcome back to The Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler here with my co-host Luke Fowler and our guest Charlie Hunt. We're talking about um, campaigning, especially congressional campaigns, but both for, I mean, all the way from like local to the president. Fourth of July, presidential candidates, is Fourth of July is a big campaign event going to parades, local barbecues, meeting people, shaking hands. Um, So, Charlie, you know, why are these appearances important for candidates? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is, you know, the obvious reason. It's the 4th of July. It has to do with, you know, our, our showing national pride. 
you know, showing that you can be the kind of candidate, the kind of representative, whether it's, you know, in a local race all the way up to the presidency, that you can be the kind of candidate who's going to uh, go to Washington or to Boise or wherever you're going to be representing and that you're going to represent those American values that uh, that we see so often on display on the 4th of July um, and that we, you know, saw saw displayed, you know, at the founding of our nation that that you're going to carry on that legacy. So there's that. And then there's also the more practical matter of, you know, like you said, parades, lots of gathering, you know, uh, you know, people being in a community together, eating and drinking and celebrating. And these are quite simply opportunities for candidates to get out there, to meet lots of people at once, to spread their message, uh, and to, you know, hopefully have a, a, a positive message so that, you know, you're not going to dampen anyone's spirits on the 4th of July. Um, you know, keep it exciting like those those fireworks. Uh, so, so I think that's something a lot of candidates uh, try to do. It's sort of like a having a built-in campaign rally or a built-in campaign event. You can just go there and have this opportunity to connect with voters that you might not normally get, you know, on a regular weekday. Sure, a large gathering of people. One of my favorite things as well is, sorry, was especially for presidential candidates, the pictures of them eating food that are just like oh, yeah. terribly embarrassing. <laughs> and you're just like, yeah, if I was a candidate, I don't think I would actually eat anything if I was at any of these appearances. Oh, yeah. There's there there are definitely it seems like there's way too much downside and not enough upside to that you know cheese whiz spilling all over you and stuff like that it it it, it doesn't seem like necessarily the best time and sometimes you know like we said before you end up looking inauthentic or you know like a fool if you you know spill stuff all over you or don't know how to eat a tamale yes <laughs> yes problem i believe um, so i mean this connects to i think there's going to be a lot of presidential candidates probably in iowa this fourth of july a few other kind of key states a lot of these candidates are active members of Congress. So what does that kind of do to Congress's operations when you have so many active members running for president? Well, the uh, this is a good news, bad news kind of thing. Uh, uh, the good news or bad news, depending on how you look at it, is, you know, Congress... Uh, very much operates on a campaign schedule. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of Americans are maybe disappointed to know how little time members of Congress actually spend in Congress. Uh, and usually during an election year, they spend even less time than usual. Now, we're not technically in an election year, but with the presidential race heating up, you know, earlier and earlier each cycle, um, you know, we have the Democratic, uh, we, we had the, re the first Democratic debates recently. And, uh, you know, uh, Congress really takes that into account, and they build in lots of uh, lots of time off to go home to the districts. And uh, you know, the, w the way the congressional schedule often works is that members of Congress will essentially be in Washington from you know basically only Tuesday through Thursday during the week, and then they fly home during the weekends to their districts to go you know either uh, fundraise or hold campaign events or you know do constituent casework, you know, work in their offices trying to help constituents, you know, uh, you know, get certain uh, government benefits uh, that they're having trouble getting access to, uh, going to things like ribbon cuttings and trying to take credit for all kinds of stuff so they can get reelected. So, you know, that's sort of a normal weekend for a member of Congress. But during the summer, um, you know, even during off years, you know, non-election years, you see a lot of members of Congress spending more and more time at home. And certainly for the presidential candidates, uh, there are, you know, a number of representatives and senators who are 
you know, spending plenty of time uh, away from Washington, uh, even during the week. And what, how does it maybe change their behavior in office as well? I think, Luke, you've brought up a few examples in the recent weeks of different behaviors. Yeah, I mean, I think this really played out uh, in the Kavanaugh hearings, right? I mean, there was several people on that committee that were accused of grandstanding um, just to try to get their name in the papers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you have, especially it happens to be that in a lot of these committees, you know, the, this in this case, this was the Senate Judiciary Committee, and they have a lot on their plate, you know, between uh, between last year, the Kavanaugh hearings, as you mentioned, uh, you know, between the ongoing investigations uh, into President Trump and various cabinet members. So you have a lot of Democratic senators and representatives, you know, people like Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand, also running for president. Uh, you know, it seems like half the Democratic caucus in the Senate is running for president. And so, uh, you know, that creates a lot of opportunity for grandstanding, you know, uh, using a lot of flowery language and trying to create sort of a viral moment, a, you know, media moment that'll be, you know, you can send out to your supporters and try and fundraise off of or uh, or make your name. I mean, part of the part of the issue here is that there are so many Democratic candidates for president that it's hard to get your name in there unless you already have that amount of name recognition that people like Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders have. So speaking of Biden, does the fact that he's not in office and he doesn't have those opportunities for grandstanding, does that hurt him at all here? Well, it's an interesting case with Biden because, you know, you would I think it does help him in, I think it helps him in a way is that he has more time to just be out on the campaign trail. Uh, but, uh, you know, he doesn't need to make those moments quite in the same way. He was vice president for eight years. He's run for president a couple times. Most Americans already know who he is. Um, and most Democrats already like him. And so, uh, you know, his best bet is to be out there on the campaign trail except he has actually been hanging back compared to a lot of candidates, right? I think, uh, I think you know, his campaign's mindset at this time is along the lines of, well, we're the front runner, and so we shouldn't do anything to rock the boat. Of course, it's Joe Biden, so, you know, he'll, he'll say, you know, something crazy sooner or later, but... Uh, or but, plagiarize. Or, or plagiarize <laughs> or, or something. Uh, and so, you know, we'll... But, uh, you know, again, not a campaign strategist, but... You know, his lead is not so enormous. It's not as enormous as, say, Hillary Clinton's in 2016, or even not as big as her lead in 2008. And she eventually lost to Barack Obama. So, um, you know, he might want to be careful because there are a lot of really strong candidates waiting in the wings should he slip up and make one of those mistakes. So what about a, a candidate like, say, Mayor Pete um, mm -hmm. or uh, John Hickenlooper, right? Uh, these candidates that are not in office or not having those same opportunities. I mean, is that... Is it still good for them that they have more time to campaign, or is or they don't have as big of a stay? Like, what's the balance there? It's a, it's an interesting thing to balance. I mean, part of part of it is that you know, when you have a bunch of people in the Senate, especially in the same committee, it become the more people you have in there, the tougher it is to sort of have the stage for yourself. Um, you know, we a lot of these candidates like Harris and Booker and Gillibrand, you know, trying to make these kind of viral moments. It doesn't always work. Um, Whereas someone like Mayor Pete has been able to create those moments out on the campaign trail, out with the voters. And when you can do that, it actually shows a lot of that authenticity and connection that we talked about before, that if you can, you know, make a viral moment out of, you know, some time when you're connecting with voters, voters see that and it makes a lot more sense to them and it 
imbues a lot of that trust. Whereas, you know, if they're seeing some committee hearing, I think a lot of voters would would say, oh, that's just, you know, Washington garbage again. And, you know, we need someone who's out there with the people. And so, you know, when you if you're someone like Mayor Pete, who's very skilled at putting together these types of moments or, or John Hickenlooper is trying to get out there and and make these connections, uh, I think it can be a big advantage that you're not, you know, stuck on Capitol Hill all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. I think especially being able to see like, oh, they're actually interacting and responding to people. Like mm-hmm. it may also help humanize the candidates some, which I mean, we know can be an issue, especially for some of the candidates who tend to be more kind of policy wonks. And I'd act- I'm actually surprised Elizabeth Warren seems to be kind of surging a little bit. And she's so focused on the policy and yet still really making connections. Warren is really interesting because she's she's been focused on the policy. But I think what she's done really well, uh, and, and you know, we'll we'll see if this continues. It's still very early. Uh, what she's been able to do really well is connect her policies with a personal story. So you know, you have, you know, Harris and and Booker and Klobuchar and Gillibrand. You know, they've all been out there having a you know showing a lot of signature policies, but just sort of talking about it in terms of you know more wonkiness now elizabeth warren is the wonkiest of the wonks but she uh but she's able to connect it to her personal story and i think that's what voters are responding to and she's doing it outside the halls of congress like mayor pete that's interesting and kind of going back to the actually getting connections or you know to, to voters can be important Absolutely. well thank you so much charlie for joining us on our special fourth of july um show we appreciate you all tuning in we hope you have a fun and safe celebration please continuing listening for more great shows on Public Affairs Thursday on Radio Boise.